So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5, and welcome to week 13 of a series that has us walking through the Gospel of John, a series that we are calling That You May Believe, because that is what John says is the purpose of this Gospel, to call people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing have life in His name. And the passage that we come to this morning, if, you, if your Bible has the words of Christ in red, it's all red. And this passage is a controversial passage. It's, it's in the context of conflict. So what we are about to hear from Jesus' mouth are, are bold, life-changing claims. So this passage is challenging because of what Jesus says about himself, what he says about God, what he says about life, about death, about salvation, and about judgment. And before we get into the text this morning, I just want us to think about all the claims that we hear in our world. So I want to begin by giving you a few famous company slogans, some of them present, some of them past, and see if you can name that company. So see if you can name the company. So here's the first one. Have it your way. So Burger King, you can have it your way. Nothing runs like a deer. So John Deere, y'all got that one. Uh, improving home improvement. So that's Lowe's. Every kiss begins with so K Jewelers. Like a good neighbor. So State Farm is there. Melts in your mouth, not in your hand. So M&M's. The quicker picker-upper. So Bounty, you guys got that. American runs on Dunkin' Donuts. There you go. I'm loving it. McDonald's. <laughs> they only got one. Come on, we could do better than that. The, the best a man can get. Marine Corps. <laughs> That, that would be Gillette, and uh, there's so many jokes we could do there, but we won't. How about this one? The youth will get this one. I don't know about us. Taste the rainbow. Oh, there, I stand corrected. Skittles. Um, what's in your wallet? Capital One. There we go. How about eat more chicken? You know, we, we could not um, leave out the blessed company of all blessed companies, so we had to mention Chick-fil-A. Um, how about you're in good hands? All state, there we go. Good to the last drop. Maxwell House. How about they're great? Frosted Flakes. And then my all-time favorite back in the 80s, and I'm going to do it like it used to be done, where's the beef? The where's the beef lady, probably the best character of all times in all commercials. Um, but here's, here's the point of all of that. Just think about all the messages that we hear on a daily basis. And the question becomes, who are we listening to? And are we listening to the one voice that eternally matters? Are we listening to the one voice that eternally matters, that matters for all of eternity? It can be safely said that no person has ever divided time except for one, Jesus Christ. He literally divided time so that when we write down dates, we are making reference to his coming upon the earth. We talk about B.C., before Christ, and then we talk about A.D., which means Anno Domini, which literally means year of our Lord. And how time is divided. Christ is the dividing line of time. 
Now, not everybody buys into that. Recently, it's been changed to BCE before the common error and CE now the common error. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you call it. The point still exists. Jesus is the divider of time. Through the centuries, scholars and skeptics have debated. They have wondered well concerning the identity of Jesus. And that really is a central question of all questions. If there's one issue the world consistently gets wrong, it's in the identity of Jesus, who he is. The moment he came to this earth, people got his identity wrong. I mean, think about this. In John 7, some said he was a good man or just a good man. Others said he was a deceiver. In Matthew 16, the disciples announced to Jesus after he asked them, who do men say that I am? They said, some say you're John the Baptist reincarnate. Others say you're the prophet Elijah, the prophet Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. In John 6, after Jesus gave the crowd a miraculous lunch buffet, they wanted to make him an earthly king. They came to him to force him to be king, meaning they thought Jesus was a politician. That he was just doing these things to be elected. In Luke 23, they called him a tax evader and one who subverted the Roman government. And then in John 10, they said he was demon-possessed. These are some of many things that people said about him when he came. But yet, let me say this. Jesus also made some claims of who he was. He claimed to be the quencher of thirst. He came to be the satisfier of hunger. He said he was the light of the world. He said he was the one that comes from heaven. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. He claimed to be the one who is before Abraham. In fact, he claimed to be the I am. He claimed to be the door of salvation, the exact representation of God the Father. Jesus claimed over and over and over again that he was God in human flesh. And what we come to this, this morning is one of the most incredible and undeniable declarations that Jesus made concerning himself. In fact, J.C. Ryle, the former bishop of Liverpool back in the 19th century, said this about this text. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proof of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. So let's dive in and just hear, hear this message from Christ. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read verses 19 through 29 together. And beginning at verse 19, it says this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we pray today as we come to your word, we do so humbly and we thank you just for the, the words of God, the word of God, the word of Christ as we hear and see in this amazing declaration. Just help us to hear these words of Jesus, our Savior, as he meant us to hear them. Oh God, just speak to us today by your Spirit in a way, Lord, that we can't ignore, that we can't deny. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So at the beginning of our time at the end, I'm going to kind of use examples, illustrations we've kind of heard before concerning C.S. Lewis and his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or the Chronicles of Narnia. But at the beginning of his books, he provides us with an interesting illustration of Jesus. So the children, Peter, Susan, um, Edward, or Edmund, excuse me, and, and Lucy have been told that they're going to meet Aslan, the great lion. And they have some questions for Mr. and Mrs. Beaver concerning Aslan. And Susan asks, well, is he quite safe? I shall feel, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Miss Beaver told you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. Let me just say this this morning. If a lion walked into this room right now, how many of us would react casually? I, I would think, even if we were told that lion was a good lion, most of us would not quickly dismiss the fact that there's a lion in the room. Now, some of you, your true colors might, might show, and you might, might push someone closer to the lion so that you can get away. Probably me would be the one that you would push closer to the lion. I don't know. But here's the point. If a lion is in the room, it changes a lot, right? It changes a whole lot. And many people want a Savior or a Jesus who is safe. A lot of people don't like the idea of a God that they ought to fear. Because a God that we ought to fear is also a God that we have to listen to and we have to obey. And most people don't want a God they have to obey. They want to make the rules. And that doesn't just exist outside. It exists inside the church as well. A God to be feared, though, is a God who is greater than us. A God who is outside of our control. Listen, who wants a God who roars? Who wants a God who threatens? Who wants a God who judges? Yet that is the God of this word. And what we just read was the initial roar 
of the great and awesome lion of the tribe of Judah. And it might not sound like a roar to us, but to those who heard Jesus speaking on this day, to them the claim that Jesus made was undeniable. They knew exactly what he was claiming, and he was claiming, in case you missed it, I'm God. I am God. So I want us to unpack today three claims that Jesus makes in these 11 verses. So only three. There are verses in this discourse that we're not going to get today just because we don't have time. And most of them we're going to hopefully get to um, in other sections of John. But the first truth we're going to unpack today is this. The first claim really is Jesus does what only God can do. Jesus does what only God can do. Look at verse 19. Says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And here's how you sum that up. Do you want to know what God is like? Then look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus never acted independently one single day of his life. When you see Jesus having compassion on a group of people, you are literally seeing the heart of God. When you see Jesus reaching out and touching and healing and um, healing the broken and those in need of physical touch, you're seeing the heart of God. When you see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, you're seeing the heart of God. And the beauty for us is this. Think about this. When you and I pray, I don't know what vision you have in your head. We are not praying to some God who's in some ivory tower uh, far, far away from us who ever, ever so often checks in or ever so often checks his messages and hears what we are telling him. No, we have a God who stepped down from heaven to earth embodied in the person of Jesus Christ so that when we talk to him, we are dealing with someone who knows all about the pains of your humanity and my humanity. He knows all about the sufferings of our world. Yet in the same way, we're dealing with someone who has all the resources of heaven. Isn't that good? We are, in praying, we are dealing with someone who knows all the pains of the earth and yet has all the resources of heaven. That is so good for us. And just think about just two of the things that Jesus claimed that only God can do. Listen to verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is claiming that he was able to give life and he was able to judge. And we're We'll look at that more in um, a little bit. But here's what we know. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he raised various people from the dead. In John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead by just saying the words, Lazarus, come forth. The Gospel of Luke reveals in Luke 7 that Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. He shows up at a funeral and messes it all up by raising the dead. I mean, no, nobody messes a funeral up like Jesus. He shows up, raises the dead, and they're like, well, what do we do now? Well, we, I brought a casserole, so let's, might as well go ahead and eat it um, in, in celebration. In the same way, in Luke 8, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And then according to Luke 10, Jesus said, I will not only lay my life down, I'm going to pick my own life back up. So what the Father is doing in heaven, giving life, 
The Son is doing on earth. Jesus shares the same goals as the Father, or we can say it this way, like Father, like Son. Like Father, like Son. This is the idea of of the Father and the Son sharing the same will. This whole picture is so important for a number of reasons, but also it's important for how we understand the cross. You know, many critics have looked at the cross over time and have claimed this. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but they've claimed that the Father was abusing His Son on the cross. They think humanly, all the while missing the unity of the Godhead. And what I mean by that is this. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit shared that experience. They shared the experience of the cross. Now, to be clear, the Father didn't die on the cross. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. Jesus did. But they shared in that sacrifice. They were united in that action. Pastor Kent Hughes writes of this popular objection this way. He, he writes these words in his book, Donahue. Talk show host Phil Donahue explains why he left the faith um, in his autobiography. And he says this, if God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down to go to Calvary himself? Then Jesus could have said, this is my Father in whom I'm well pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow his Son to be murdered on a cross in order that he might redeem my sins? And Pastor Kent Hughes responded this way, Donahue's indictment of God's love comes from ignorance of the Scriptures. For Jesus' claim of equality with the Father, make the Father a sharer in Jesus' sacrifice, pain, and love. As verse 19 says, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. And Hugh says, Jesus' claim to equality with the Father demands that we see two hearts beating as one. Two hearts beating as one. The Son does not operate independently from the Father. Jesus does what only God can do. But the second claim is this. Jesus receives honor only God deserves. Jesus receives honor only God deserves. Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So think with me in this way. So Jesus is not a trust fund baby who lives off his father's name while not caring at all about his father's business. Jesus also is not the black sheep who dishonors his father in all things. Jesus isn't the type A firstborn trying to outdo his dad to make a name for himself. And in a similar way, Jesus is not a second God who came to steal the worship and adoration that belongs to the true God. No, Jesus is perfectly in sync with the Father. He is the true God. Him and the Father are one. But Jesus basically lays it out this way. To worship God is to worship Jesus, and to worship Jesus is to worship God. In other words... If someone in another religion, like they do all the time, claims to honor God, but they do not honor Jesus, then they aren't honoring God. You can't honor God if you do not honor Jesus. You can't make much of God if you don't make much of his son. And our text is a tried and true method for discerning whether a person really honors Jesus. Think about it like this. How how do we know whether a person honors Jesus? Well, does this person honor Jesus for who he is, meaning 
God? Do they honor Jesus for being God? Do they honor Jesus as the, be the only begotten Son of God who is the creator of all things? Do they honor Jesus as fully human yet fully divine second person of the Trinity? Do they honor Jesus as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Do they honor Jesus as the crucified yet risen Savior of the world and King of all the universe who upholds everything with the word of his own power? And do they honor Jesus as the final judge of both the living and the dead who one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord? If they don't honor Jesus that way, they don't honor God period. If you don't honor Jesus that way, you don't honor God, period. Let me put it another way. You don't tip the cap to Jesus. You bow your knee. You bow your knee to him. And if you don't bow your knee to him, then you're not honoring the Father. One theologian said this, Muslims and Jews give the God they worship beautiful and magnificent titles. However, we should remember, hear this, that whenever God's name is separated from Jesus, it's nothing more than empty imagination. Whenever God's name is separated from Jesus, it's nothing more than empty imagination. Listen, it's easy to think about Jesus and come up and say things like, well, I really respect him. Jesus did some really good things. He said some really great things. But just think about those statements from God's perspective. God made us, and yet we rebelled against God. So instead of punishing us, God set in motion a plan to rescue us. And that plan required God to send his son to, born, to be born as a man, to live a perfect life, and then to die a horrible death on the cross for your sin and my sin so that we could be forgiven and freed. And imagine hearing that and going, well, I, I, I really respect Jesus for that. I really respect him for that. Please hear this. God did not send his son so that you would respect him. He sent his son so that you would throw yourself at his feet and ask him to rescue you. Ask him to rescue you. God is not after your respect. He's after you. He's after you. He's after your life. He's after you coming to him on his own terms. And what are, what are the terms of God? Jesus, in Jesus, through Jesus, when we come to God on his terms, through his son, that honors him. That honors him. So Jesus receives honor that only God deserves. And then lastly, Jesus has power only God can claim. Jesus has power that only God can claim. Listen to verse 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So Jesus speaks about the dead here. And here's what we know. Everyone dies. Two people die every second. 102 people die every minute. 6,136 people die every hour. And think about who, who dies. The rich die, the poor die, the young and the old, male and female, famous and obscure. Everyone, unless Christ returns, will die. There is a 100% chance, unless Christ returns, that we will die. 
Not 99.9, 100%. It is a reality. And I have done a lot of funerals. And I have observed people standing in front of a casket talking to their loved ones. And that's not weird. That, that's normal. So I'm, I'm not, so don't, don't hear anything I'm not saying. But what I've never seen, I've never seen a person in that casket talk back. Never seen a person in that casket respond at all to what their loved one was saying. And, and that's what makes it so sad. But what Jesus is saying is this. When I speak to the corpses, they listen. And when I speak to the corpses, they respond. They do what I tell them to do. Why? Because verse 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And now look, listen, or look at verse 27. And this is a key. And we're going to stay here for just a few minutes. Verse 27, Jesus said, And he has given him, talking about the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. This is one of the most colossal claims of Jesus in all the gospels that Jesus is going to judge the whole earth. The doctrine of divine judgment is probably one of the most neglected teachings, not just outside the church, it's often neglected inside the church. It's neglected outside because nobody believes it, but it's often neglected inside because we don't want to hear it. Think about it like this. If, if I were to talk to you today about God the Father, maybe about God as your friend or God as your helper or God as the one who forgives us of all of our sin, and all of those things are true. But if I were to talk to you today about those things, I would see smiles on your faces. I would see your heads moving up and down in the light, I would see that you would enjoy what I'm saying because we need that. But if I dare to speak about God as the final judge who will evaluate every life and render an eternal verdict, or a God who is the judge who will hold everyone accountable, I will see different reactions. Instead of heads moving up and down, I'll see heads go down. Instead of seeing smiles upon faces, I'll see your eyebrows scrunch and your, your mouth kind of uh, get really solid. And here's the deal. Oftentimes when we hear about God being judged, it is a repelling thought in our minds. And here's the problem. Let me just lay it out here. If you don't think that God is the judge, then you're going to have to rip out a whole lot of pages of this Bible. If you don't think that God is the judge of the whole world, you better rip out so many different pages of Scripture. In fact, the word judgment occurs 190 times in the Bible. And in all of its forms, judge, judgment, or judging, when applied to God, occurs 450 times in the Bible. Here's a little sketch. God judged Adam and Eve after sin entered the world, kicking them out of the garden and pronouncing a curse that affected all humanity. Then God judged the entire world during the time of Noah by sending a flood to destroy all mankind except for Noah and his family. Then God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, engulfing them in a volcanic catastrophe. Then God judged Egypt with ten plagues in order to get his people out of Egypt. Then God judged the children of Israel because they were worshiping a golden calf. Then God judged individuals like Nadab and Abihu, Dothan and Korah and Achan. God judged them in incredible and gruesome ways. 
eventually God judged the whole northern kingdom of Israel by sending them into Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. And then years later, God judged the southern kingdom in 586 by sending them into uh, captivity um, to, into Babylon. So over and over again, we see God's judgment. I know some of you are thinking to yourself right now, well, that's only the Old Testament. Well, let's go to the New Testament. How about Jesus judging Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, saying it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for them because they had been in the presence of Jesus. They had seen the miracles of Jesus. They had heard the words of Jesus, and they would not repent. How about Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives and judging Jerusalem because they did not recognize that their Messiah had come? How about Jesus declaring that there would be judgment in A.D. 70 on Jerusalem, which happened? And then it doesn't end there. We get to the book of Acts. Remember those, that couple, Ananias and Sapphira, dropped dead in the middle of the offering. Listen, if, you, if people stop, start dropping dead in the middle of the offering, we're going to have to figure out a different way to do it. We're going to have to figure out some different way, but because of their hypocrisy, because they lied to the Holy Spirit, they dropped dead in the middle of the offering. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that God judges people who approach the Lord's Supper in a, in a way that doesn't honor or glorify God. In fact, Paul said this, some are sick and some have died because of the way they approach the Lord's table. But get this, all of these examples I gave you are just intermediate examples of judgment. What Jesus is talking about here in John 5 is the big one. The eternal, final, irreversible judgment where God will judge based on two things. What did you do with Jesus? Did you receive him? Did you reject him? And number two, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with every opportunity I gave you? What did you do with the resources I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? And now I have a question. Now, why is Jesus the one who will judge? In verse 25, just look at verse 25 and just kind of read it over in your mind. When Jesus speaks about his power to give life, he calls himself what? The son of, the son of God. So in verse 25, he calls himself the Son of God. So I have the power to give life. I am the Son of God. But in verse 27, when Jesus speaks about the power to judge, he, rever he refers to himself as the Son of what? Son of man. The Son of man. It's, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, because the Son of God became a Son of man, I now have the right and authority to judge all of man. In fact, think about it like this. 83 times in the Gospels where the Son of Man is used, just about all of them are in reference to the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where God judged our sin. So here's the point. Because, God, or because Jesus took God's judgment upon himself, he is now able to dispense the judgment of God on all people. Because he took the judgment of God upon himself, he's now able to dispense God's judgment on all people. Jesus is the judge. He is a just judge, a righteous judge. He will not judge wrong, and you cannot put money in his pocket. He is not corrupt in any way. He will make all wrongs right. And now let's finish with verses 28 and 29. Jesus finishes this way. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of the judgment. And here's what we know. There are two judgments that are spoken of in Scripture. Well, probably three if you can include the cross. But two judgments. The first is the judgment seat of Christ, which will be the judgment of Christians, not for our sins, because our sins have already been paid for in Christ, but for our reward, for what we did in salvation with what God gave us. The judgment seat of Christ. The second judgment is the great white throne judgment where every unbeliever, every unbeliever will be judged for their unbelief. Now, real quick, in verse 29, Jesus says some things, some words that some people take and and kind of twist them where Jesus says, everyone will, will come out of the grave, those who have done good to resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So people say, well, Jesus says that you're good you go to heaven if you're bad you go to hell no that's not what jesus is saying jesus is saying basically two things number one if you have truly been saved there will be works associated with your salvation if you're saved it will be accompanied by works if you're not saved you will also have works but here's what also jesus is saying the most good thing you will ever do in your life is to trust jesus and the most evil thing you can ever do in your life is not to trust him Let me say it again. The the most good thing you can ever do in your life is to trust him. The most evil thing you can ever do in your life is not. We are all going to be raised from the dead someday. Our decomposed body, depending on how long we've been in the grave, will obey the voice of the Son of God. We will rise from the dead. We will face Jesus, the one who is humanly tempted just like we are yet without sin. And Jesus will look at your life. He will look at my life, not for perfection, but for evidence that we are his and for evidence that we lived our life abiding in him. That we trusted him, that we rested in him, that we received what he gave us, that we loved him and that we loved others. Don't miss the final blessing that comes to those who know him, and also don't miss the eternal bondage that comes to those who don't. Don't miss it. Don't miss the blessing that's ours if you're in Christ, or the blessing that could be yours. And don't miss what's coming for us. What is coming for us? Let me end this way. The very last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series is a book called The Last Battle. And towards the end of the book, Aslan the lion, representing Christ, tells Peter, Edmund, and Lucy that there has been a railroad accident and they are dead. And now listen to how it ends. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great, so beautiful, that I cannot even write about them. And for us, this is the end of the stories And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. Don't miss it. Their life in this world, all of their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before.
You know what? We can't say that here. We can't say that every chapter of our life is better than the one before. We have chapters in our stories here on this earth. Some are good and a lot are bad. But there is coming a day where day one of all that God has for us and every single chapter will get better and better and better and better. Every single one. But let me just end this way. It all comes down to this. Will you honor the Son? Will you honor the Son? Are you honoring the Son? Will you? Will you see that He does what only God can do? He gives us life. Not just physical life. We talked about that. He gives us spiritual life. Will we receive? Will, will we give Him the honor that He receives and that He, he requires? That we honor Him as God. And will we understand his power that one day, if he doesn't come again, one day we will be in the ground and we will hear his voice and we will come out and we will stand before him. And don't start, if you're a child of God, don't start worrying saying, well, what about this? What about that? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you will not stand before God and be judged by your sin because Jesus took your judgment for you. But you will give an account of every decision you've ever made. You will give an account of how you used everything that God gave to you and how you responded to those things will determine the reward that we have in heaven. God isn't looking the other way. He is looking directly at us. And Jesus will judge us rightly and he will judge us truly. And he will judge us in a way that we will never be able to say, uh, you got it wrong. No, he will make it very, very clear. He knows every detail. Oh, that we would continue to live for him or that we would begin to live for him in a new way in order to bring him honor and glory and that we would do so together as a faith family. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to call Brother Frank the musicians forward as we enter into this time of invitation and consecration. And let's pray together. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your son. That if we want to know, God, what you are like, we look to your son. If we want to know what you love, we look to what Jesus loved. If we want to know how you feel about us, we look to what Jesus did and how he responded to our need. And Jesus, we want to be careful this morning to give you honor, to give you praise, to come to you on your terms. That Jesus, you are the only savior of sinners in all the world. And we will stand before you one day. And that first question will be, what did we do with you? Did we reject you, Jesus, or did we turn from our sin? Did we turn from trusting in ourselves? And did we turn to you alone, trusting you as our Savior and Lord? If we did, we will be forever and ever and ever with you. And every day will be sweeter. Every chapter will be better. And then we'll have to respond, Lord, to how, how we were used of you, how we responded and treated the things that you gave us, the opportunities, the resources, the blessings. We will have to give an account and help us to live in light of that account, Lord. Not by doing it on our own, but letting you live in us and through us. Lord, I pray for anyone that's here today or who will be here that doesn't know you, that today would be a day that they would truly honor you, Jesus, by trusting you as Savior and Lord. That's a day of ultimate honor for you, Jesus, to save sinners. And, and again, we praise that you do just that. We thank you for saving us.
We thank you for what we have to look forward to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.